As always, it is a joy to be back um, studying God's Word together for another night. And uh, as you probably anticipate, you can open to the book of 1 John. That's where we're going to be tonight, 1 John chapter 5. Getting close to the end, guys. Probably bittersweet. You're probably like, wow, I never thought that would happen. I never thought we would actually get there. Um, But yes, we are approaching the end. And um, you guys are, I'm probably, whatever the next book that I teach, I'm probably going to say this at the beginning of every book, just kind of by default. John's purpose in writing this letter is for assurance, right? I've only said that about a hundred times. About 20 times, actually. This is message number, number 20. In this sweet epistle, in, in all seriousness, we do remember that the, that the goal, John's goal in this letter is to promote our assurance. John wants to help us grow in confidence that we really do know the Lord. And if we don't know the Lord, he wants to show us that. He wants to help us see that. And he does that so that we can truly know him. That's his goal. So that we can live a life of joy and love and confidence in Christ. That we're not living lives of deception. And the last time we were together, you know, we were marching through, uh, we we brought chapter 4 to an end, coming into chapter 5. The last time we were there, we saw that, that John focused our attention on faith, the subject of faith. So we know he's kind of been weaving these themes of love and faith together. And he's really bringing it to to a head here in chapter 5. And faith in Christ, like we saw, it holds everything in our lives together. So we said it's it's central to everything. Faith is the center. That's because faith is how we come to Christ. We come believing in Him, turning away from the things that we hoped in previously, and hoping in Him. And faith is how we grow in Christ. So it's how we come and how we grow. Or we could say it like this. In our conversion, we entrust ourselves to Christ. And in our sanctification, we battle to continue trusting Christ. So it's that initial entrustment and a continual entrustment to Him. Or we could say it like John says it, as we, as we come to know and to believe His love for us, we become better and better lovers of others. And that's how faith and love are connected. Faith will lead to love. So faith is central uh, for that reason, obviously. It's how we come to Christ and how we grow in Christ. But for John, faith is central in at least a couple other ways that we saw last week. Faith, he says, is central because it's a sign of something greater. Faith, when it's in our lives, when we see it in our lives, when we're exercising faith, faith is a sign of something greater. It's a sign that we have already been born of God, he says in chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, in the perfect tense. It means everyone who currently believes, present, currently believes that Jesus is the Christ has already been born of God in the perfect. It's a sign that we've been born again. John knows that faith ultimately did not come from us. God opened our blind eyes. 
He gave us new life. He caused us to be born again. 1 Peter 1. And our very first cry as spiritual infants was the cry of faith. And that's what he's getting at when he says in in 5.1 that our faith in Christ reveals that we have already been born again. It points to something greater about us, that, that God in His kindness has already been at work. And we saw last week how that is a tremendous assurance for us. But that's not all that that John says. There's yet another reason that our faith is central. We looked at that again last week. And John says it's a sign, our faith is a sign, that we have and will overcome the world. That we have overcome the world and we will overcome the world. Faith points to that. Look in verse 4. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Our faith is the victory, John says, that we have overcome the world. And he means that since faith comes from the new birth, John knows we won't ultimately fall away. We won't stop believing. He knows that we won't ultimately fall prey to Satan's lies. We won't succumb to his deceptions that will lead us from the truth, ultimately. The world won't finally conquer us. It's the other way around. Even though we battle the enticements of the world daily, even though we're surrounded by its pressures, even though Satan is in control of it and he is far greater than us, We will not fall to it in an ultimate sense because our faith reveals that we are connected to Christ. And because of Him, we have and will overcome and we will endure. And so those are some of the reasons that faith is so central and why he's kind of bringing this to this exclamation point here at the end of this letter. He wants us to understand what faith is, why it's so central, and how to strengthen it. But I don't think John would want us to misunderstand some of these statements here. He doesn't want us to kind of grow cavalier. Just because our future is secure, and it is. Even though that's true, John knows we still will need to battle in this world. Deceits still come. We are still responsible for growing in discernment, for not falling prey to those lies. That's because God uses means to keep us on the path. And one of those means is learning and growing in the truth. And John knows that even as believers, we can be tempted to waver in our faith. Our faith can grow stronger, but it can also atrophy at times. We can be overcome with lies and deception, even though it won't ultimately take us to hell. And the worst kinds of lies, if we can, if we can speak like that, are the, the, the doubts that can sometimes creep in about the trustworthiness of God and His words. And we know those doubts, right? For me, they come in the middle of the night when I've woken up. And it sounds like this. Is all this really true? 
Is it really true? Was Jesus of Nazareth truly the Messiah? What if I'm wrong? Will I really be raised from the dead one day? What if suffering comes? Will I deny Christ? Or will I continue to confess Him in faith? These doubts can roll in, and often do, and sometimes feel like a tidal wave. So if we're going to stake our entire life on Christ, if we're going to stake our death on Christ, if we're going to truly entrust ourselves to Him, if we're going to live radically and sacrificially for Him in this life, we must be convinced about Him. We must be confident in the object of our faith. Or say it like this, we have to know the person that we put our trust in. And we can't be left to wonder about the significance of who He is or what He's accomplished or the truthfulness of His claims. And so tonight, John wants us to know that we have a sure basis. The most firm foundation imaginable. We have a confident hope foundation for our faith to rest upon. John wants to deepen our certainty that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That He really is. He's going to show us that God Himself has borne witness and that we can take His words to the bank. And that any doubt in our heart is calling God a liar because of what He has pledged to his children. We can bank on his words in confidence that we have eternal life in the middle of a world of decay and death. And so I'm calling tonight the testimony of God. That's what we're going to see in our, our, our passage. God has given a testimony, and it's the sure foundation of our faith. So tonight, as we, we look at this passage, let's go ahead and read it together. Beginning in verse 6. It's really part of the passage that we just finished last week. So we just finished, remember, the bookends of verse 1 and verse 5 about calling Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Son of God. Those two titles of, of Christ. We looked at that in depth last week. And our faith sinks its teeth into that. When we confess Jesus, we're confessing Him as the Christ and as the Son of God. Now, he wants us to understand what this means a bit more, so we're going to flesh this out. This is he, verse 6, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. 
And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So this is the testimony of God. And in this passage, we're going to see that our faith has a sure foundation. And John wants to lay that foundation for us, give us something to to sink our teeth into, to stand on, to live for, and die for. And so I've just kind of boiled this passage down. It's it's a pretty interesting passage, as you can tell by just reading it. Uh, There's a number of things that make this passage interesting. But I'm just going to boil this passage down into four assurances that John gives us to strengthen our faith. Four assurances that John gives us about Christ and about the testimony that God has made to strengthen our faith. Because we need strengthening. We need to know what our foundation is. We want to shore up any any cracks that we may see in that foundation. And here's the first assurance that John gives us. We could say it like this. Jesus fulfilled... Messianic expectations. This is going to take a bit of explaining. Okay? We talked about this a bit last week when we looked at Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. We explored that. You could probably, if you take notes, you can kind of look back and see, see those things. But John here is going to elaborate. And his first assurance for us is that Jesus has fulfilled Messianic expectations. We've got to know that. That's what our, our faith sinks its teeth into. Look with me again in, in verse 6. This is He, or better, this is the One who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. So you're saying, huh? <laughs> what was He talking about? As soon as we read this, we have all kinds of questions. What is he talking about when he says Jesus came by water and by blood? And why does he say not by water only and also by blood? Well, as we're going to see, John is responding to a heresy of the false teachers in the background of this church. And even for us, we're going to see that that this is John's shorthand way of saying that Jesus has fulfilled messianic expectations. So let me make a few of those observations for you to help you track in case you're a little bit skeptical um, and then kind of put it all back together. All right, notice initially that John is now elaborating on Jesus. Okay, He calls him the one who came. This is the one who came. So who is this? It's referring to verse 5, Jesus as the Son of God. This is he who came by water and the blood. And then he tells us, Jesus, Jesus Christ. So he's he's elaborating on Jesus, and he calls him the one who came. The SV says this is he who came. The NASB says this is the one who came, and I like that better. And I I like that better because we hear what John intends a little more clearly. We hear that resonance of another messianic title. The one who comes, right? Right? 
This idea of the one who comes or the one who is coming, this is one of the ways that the Messiah was talked about in the Old Testament, in the intertestamental period, and in the early days of, of Jesus, the, kind of the, the second temple period. Let me just give you one example from John's gospel. We'll kind of back it up. In John eleven twenty seven, Lazarus has just died. Martha, his sister, is grief-stricken. It's an incredible scene. But Jesus comes to her, and he asks her if she believes that those who believe in him will never die. Do you believe this? Now listen to how she answers him. She says, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Kind of a weird way to put that. I thought he's already in the world. He's standing right in front of her. That's because it's a title. I believe you are the Christ. We saw that in our passage. The Son of God. We also saw that in our passage. The one who is coming into the world. And this title arose from a network of Old Testament texts. Okay, didn't just come, come in a vacuum. It comes from these these, these texts, like Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 says this, says, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Or, let's take Psalm 118.26. It says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's talking about a future Davidic king. Or Daniel 7.13. This one's dramatic because it implies the way it's described here is it implies that this one who's coming shares, shares divinity with God. And behold, Daniel 7.13, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. So again, the coming, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So these texts, even that I just quoted to you, Zechariah 9.9, Psalm 118, Daniel 7, these are texts that get picked up again and again in the New Testament by the New Testament authors. And by the time of Jesus, they could refer to the coming one or the one who comes as a way of expressing this messianic expectation. And here... John picks up on this by describing Jesus in 1 John 5 as the one who came. Okay? You tracking that? The whole progression here? The one who came. So that's why I'm saying that this first assurance has to do with Jesus fulfilling messianic expectations. That raises another question, right? So how? How does Jesus fulfill these Messianic expectations, according to John. 1 John 5. Well, John says it's in how he came. He came by or through water and blood. And not just by water. Notice he says that in the next clause. Not water only, but water and blood. So, what does he mean? Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on this interpretation. John doesn't give us a lot to go on here, um, at least in the water part. But I think 
um, I think we get a clear, pretty clear picture. Obviously, his, his audience would have known more immediately than us because we're, we're separated by a thousand, couple thousand years. But for us, I think when we survey John and we see what he's doing and we understand kind of the, the flow of this passage, I think we'll, we'll take him one at a time. Let's look at water. What does he mean when he came by water? I think water is most likely a reference to Jesus' baptism by John. Jesus' baptism by John. Some people kind of, some people will think it's a reference to, they take water and blood together as a reference to Jesus' the cleansing of his death. And they will point to John 19, where he was stabbed, remember? And out of his side flow both water and blood. In that context, it's blood and water. And I think that's a legitimate interpretation, but I don't think that carries the weight of of the interpretation that, I, that I'm, I'm giving you now. Because you're going to see, you can apparently separate the two. You can apparently separate water and blood and believe in water and not believe in blood. So I'll talk about that more in a second. Water is most likely a reference to Jesus' baptism by John. Now at this point, we might be tempted to think, what? Like, Jesus' baptism by John? Like, what? Like that's fulfilling messianic expectations. Like of everything you could you could tell us, we're going to talk about that. Aren't there more significant ways that he fulfilled those expectations? Well, I don't I don't think so. At least not. I think this is sort of the the begin the the one that stands kind of at the front, at least according to the to the history of Jesus' ministry. It was at Jesus' baptism that he was initially identified by John, the baptizer, as Israel's Messiah. He was identified publicly there as the Messiah. So, let's do this. Keep your finger, well, no, if you have a little, I don't care how you do it, got paper, whatever. Mark 1 John 5, and let's flip back to Luke Let's go over to Luke. And go to Luke chapter 3. So I want to build this out a little bit and show you how the baptism of Jesus is really fulfilling Messianic expectations. So we know the, the story. John the Baptist comes on the scene. And his job is to what? Is to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. The coming of the Lord. But John's very presence, his birth and being raised up, is itself fulfillment of Isaiah 40. He says so in Luke 3. If you look at verse 4, it talks about John's Role John the Baptist John the Baptist's role, and then it, and then he says, you know, he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in verse three. Now verse four, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So he's John himself is the came in fulfillment of Isaiah forty to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. 
So then you keep going. You see him preparing the people through the rest of, of the first half of that chapter. Then, verse 15, as the people were in expectation, so they were, oh, okay, John's here. He's proclaiming this, this repentance and baptism. They were all questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So clearly, we've got some messianic expectations coming because John's on the scene. And John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor, to gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. Okay, a little parenthetical note here in verse 19. Now verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So we think, what's the big deal about Jesus' baptism? Well, the Spirit descended on Jesus at this baptism, and it visibly marked him out as the Messiah. And this giving of the Spirit fulfilled many texts that predicted that the Messiah would be endowed with God's own Spirit. We're not going to turn there, but you can write down Isaiah 11.2, Isaiah 42.1, Isaiah 61.1. So it's 11.2, 42.1, 61.1. The Messiah himself would be endowed with God's own spirit. It's pretty significant. And here it is happening. Just like God said. Then as the spirit rested on Jesus, God the Father didn't want to leave anyone guessing about the significance of what was happening. So he audibly confirmed that Jesus is his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. There's only one other time this happens. And it's on the Mount of Transfiguration and it's only with three other of his closest apostles. Here it's public. This is arguably the most public attestation from heaven of the the significance of Jesus and his messianic status. At the baptism. And when God says this, when he calls him his beloved son, and he says he's well pleased, he's delighted in his son, he is merging two significant texts in the Old Testament. Psalm 2, my son, today I've begotten you. Psalm 2, and Isaiah 42.1. It's about his delight being in his servant. These two texts were common to be viewed together during this period in this 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 Milu, this first century, the rabbis would bring these together and talk about Jesus, in, or not Jesus, but would talk about Messiah in those terms. And here God is echoing that Himself from heaven audibly to His audience. So this marks Jesus out at the very beginning of His ministry as the Son of God. Alright? He's the Son of God. And the genealogy, again, Luke doesn't want us to miss that. Verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, 
was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, and then Daisy chained it all the way down to verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And as the son of God, just called out as son by the father, shown, by, shown in genealogy to be the son of God, now, chapter 4, the son of God will succeed where all other sons of God have failed. Israel before Jesus and Adam before Israel. And notice, it's, it's his sonship that's in question. The devil said to him, if you are the, verse 3, the devil said to him, if you're the son of God. Verse 9, again, if you are the son of God. So his sonship is being questioned, challenged, and Jesus proves he's the son by his obedience. So this is all kind of wrapped up in this first public event of Jesus' baptism by water. Kind of unglamorous, you know, at first glance. But this first public event says a lot about Jesus' messianic identity. This water baptism and everything else that happened when he was baptized, especially the giving of God's Spirit, this marked out Jesus of Nazareth as the long-awaited messianic king. We could even say it like this. The water baptism bears witness to his messianic identity. It bears witness. It testifies to his identity as the Messiah. Now, one more just cool reference. Uh, Turn over to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John doesn't actually narrate, interestingly, he doesn't actually narrate the actual baptism. But he's all around it. He more interprets it. So here's the Baptist, verse 29 of John 1. He's talking about Jesus, and he's talking about his baptism, how he baptized with water, and, and he's you know, confronting the Pharisees, and they're asking, are you the Christ? He's like, no, I'm not. You know. So then the next day, verse 29, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water. Why? That he might be revealed to Israel. Revealed as what? Revealed as the Messiah. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's talk about His baptism beginning of his ministry. So that's the first evidence that John draws attention to. The first evidence of this messianic status. You can turn back to 1 John 5. He draws attention to the fact that Jesus came as Messiah by water. But it's not the last thing he says. He says he also came by blood. 
Now, this one's easier. Blood is certainly a reference to Jesus' substitutionary and atoning death. It's a reference to his death. And in many ways, his death is the very climax of his ministry. Kind of like bookends. You've got the baptism on the front end and the death on the back end. And it's his death. His death is what accomplishes our forgiveness. And John's already told us in this letter, back in chapter 1, verse 7, he's already told us that the blood of Jesus does what? It cleanses us from every sin. From all sin. So in other words, Jesus' death provides the ultimate atoning sacrifice. That final propitiation that ushers in the new covenant when God remembers our sins no more. And it's his death, too, that dramatically identifies him as God's Messiah. So we think, okay, well, how does that, how does that work? We've preached an entire message on this back when we did our What is the Gospel series. So I'm not going to re-preach it here, but I'll give you the highlights. All right? Isaiah 53 is the obvious choice. And it's the one that the apostles are quick to draw our attention to. There, this messianic king is the one who will be crushed by God for the sins of the people, and he will rise again. He will justify those who believe in him. And in the Gospels, at at Jesus' trials and in his crucifixion, there are a number of allusions to this incredibly significant prophecy of Isaiah 53. It's kind of a given. So far from disproving his Messiahship, like the Jews of his day would have thought, you can't have a crucified Messiah, Isaiah 53 stands to differ. And beyond Isaiah, there are a lot of allusions to the Psalms when Jesus is crucified. Especially to those Psalms that are written by David. Why would that be? That's because the Messiah was predicted to be another David. Or a new David. In Jeremiah, let's give you some examples of this. The Messiah there is just, he's just called David. Jeremiah 30, verse 9. Just called David. He's clearly not David, because it's written way after David. But he calls the Messiah David. In Ezekiel, he's called my servant David. In Ezekiel 34, 23, and 24. Also in chapter 37, in, in verse 24 and 25. So Ezekiel, he calls him my servant David, even though it's way after the, the historic David. And in Hosea, Hosea 3.5, he calls this Messiah David their king. These prophets are not referring to the first David, but they're referring to the final one. And they call him not just the Davidic king, but David himself. Why is that? Because his life, this is it, his life will resemble David's life. There will be parallels, in other words. His life will fit the pattern of David's life. Well, how so? Well, David suffered before he was raised up. Remember? He was anointed as king. Then what happened? 
hunted by Saul for a number of years, lived in the wilderness, constantly was crying out to God, constantly was writing psalms of lament about how he was hunted. And it's in the psalms, then, that we find the most vivid descriptions of David's sufferings. And that's why we find the psalms quoted again and again during Jesus' passion. His death, the shedding of His blood, bears testimony to the fact that He is the Davidic Messiah, the Son of God. That's crucial, because the Jews of Jesus' day were thinking, He's not David, because He's suffering. They viewed it as proof that He was not the Messiah. But it was the very proof that He was the Messiah, that the the Messiah should first suffer and then enter into glory. Luke 24. And even if we go, okay, so there's Isaiah, there's the Psalms, even if we go beyond those references, the Father Himself confirms that Jesus is the Messiah at His death. You think, how? There are so many signs surrounding His death. You can write down Matthew 27 and, and look this up later, but I'll give you a few of them. It was complete darkness for three hours, starting at noon. Complete darkness for three hours, middle of the day. Never happened before. And why, what's, that, what's going on there? Because utter darkness is a sign of the day of the Lord. It's a sign that God is pouring His judgment out on His Son, There's complete darkness at midday, Matthew 27, 45. He also says the veil of the temple was torn in half. And a major earthquake happened. And then even the resurrection of dead saints a few days after that, after Jesus was raised, the dead saints came back to life, Matthew 27 says. And then Matthew tells us that when one Roman centurion, he was, he was standing there, he saw everything that was happening, the earthquake, the darkness. He was amazed and he said, truly, this was the Son of God. He got the point of the signs. This Roman pagan understood the point of the signs. So when John says here that Jesus came by blood, he's getting at the fact that his messianic identity is confirmed by his death, the way he died, the significance of what happened at his death. Now, before we leave this point, I want you to notice that John is emphatic about the blood here in this text. He wants to make sure that we don't leave that one out. He said, not by water only, but by water and by the blood. So why does he say that? Why does he kind of underscore that, kind of drive that point home? Well, it's most likely because he's addressing, he's directly addressing a heresy of the false teachers. These false prophets likely taught that the Spirit of Christ, okay, it's going to sound a little weird, okay, but this is probably what they were saying. The Spirit of Christ, okay, so kind of d- divorce it from Jesus of Nazareth, okay? The Spirit of Christ descended on the man Jesus at the baptism of John. Kind of hard to deny when you have the Father telling you that that's what's going on. All right? 
The false prophets likely taught that the Spirit of Christ descended on the man Jesus at the baptism of John, but that this sort of Christ Spirit left him before his death. And they likely taught that the Christ didn't actually come in the flesh, that he's sort of spirit. And he didn't come in flesh, that that would have corrupted him maybe. But he only appeared to have come in a short duration in the man Jesus. And then he abandoned him at his death. And then to take it even further, they probably claimed that it was they who now had the anointing, these false prophets. It was they who had the Spirit, this Christ Spirit dwelling upon them. And so they had this sort of higher knowledge, this way of life that John and the other apostles were, were not, did not have access to. But John wants this church to be assured that this is certainly not the truth. Jesus came by water and by blood. Meaning, he came by the baptism and by his vicarious death. So, what's the significance of this? Just, this is my longest point, by the way, tonight. So, rest assured. John wants us to realize that we have something to sink our teeth down into. We're talking about believing in Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, from the beginning to the end of his ministry, is confirmed as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as the one who stands in Adam's place and is going to reverse the cosmos. Do you realize the claims of Christ? They're cosmic in scope. They affect every person. They affect every country. So from beginning to end of His ministry, He is confirmed as this Messianic King. Thousands of signs and prophecies are fulfilled. He matches the patterns. And so we can stake our lives upon His testimony. We can live for it. We can face cancer trusting it. James's parents can stay in Ukraine because of it. We can all enter into the shadow of death holding on to it because as we're going to see, we can be confident we're going to come out on the, the other side in eternal life, in resurrection. Because the foundation, sure. We've got to know that. And to drive this point home, he goes on now to say that the Spirit, the Spirit... He certainly didn't leave Christ. Okay, The Spirit agrees with the testimony of the water and blood. And that leads us to our second assurance that will strengthen our faith. The Spirit testifies in harmony with these events. Look with me at the end of verse 6. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. So John says here that the Spirit is also bearing witness about the Messianic nature of Jesus of Nazareth. And he is also testifying 
to what is true because he is the truth. And so, he speaks in unison with the other two witnesses, the water and the blood. In other words, John's point is that the Spirit is in total harmony. He's saying the same thing as the events say themselves. But let's press this a little further. Let's get a little more precise. What does John mean when he says that the Spirit testifies or bears witness? Is it in the same way as the events? We could put it differently. What's the Spirit's unique role in this testimony? And how does this bring us assurance? How, does this, how do we sink our teeth into this, okay? Well, to answer these questions, we need to pan out a little in John's writings to see what he actually says about the Spirit's role, Okay? And you can either write these down or you can ask me for my notes later because I don't have them on the screen. All right, I'll give, you, I'll give you a couple. In John 15, he tells us, number one, that the Spirit bears witness specifically about Christ. So that might seem like a duh statement, but John 15, 26, the Spirit bears witness specifically about Christ. Meaning that he reveals to the human heart that Jesus of Nazareth really is the Christ. Like, that's what he's doing. He's the agent, in other words, he's God's agent who opens our blind eyes. That's because, number two, the Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John 16, 9. The Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John 16, 9. That's what John goes on to tell us about the Spirit in chapter 16. His testimony is a convicting testimony. He takes God's historic revelation and he impresses it subjectively on people's consciences. That's how the Spirit testifies. But John also says he'll do something in particular for the apostles. All right? Number three, he says that the Spirit will guide them into all truth. The Spirit will guide them into all truth. John 16, 13 through 15. He will take what he hears from the Father and declare it to them, Jesus says. This means that after the ascension of Christ, that the Spirit's ministry to John and the other apostles would be to clarify the truth about Jesus to them. That's his role. He would help them see the full implications of who Jesus is and what he's done, and he would reveal these things to them so that they could accurately bear testimony too. John 15, 27. Spirit reveals truth to them, the truth about Christ, guide them into all truth about Christ so that they can bear accurately bear testimony as well. But the Spirit's ministry doesn't stop there, just with the apostles. His powerful testimony about Jesus is applied to us too. John has already taught us that number four the Spirit grants us knowledge about the identity of Jesus through the teaching of the apostles. The Spirit Himself grants us, you and I, knowledge about the identity of Jesus through the teaching of the apostles. He's already taught us that. 1 John 2.20 He says that we too have the anointing. Another reference to the Spirit. We too have the anointing. Which means that each one of us, he says have knowledge about the true identity of Jesus. 
1 John 2.20. So why do we have this knowledge about Jesus? Because we've been anointed by the Spirit. That's his rationale. We've been given the Spirit. He's been graciously given to us as a gift so that we can understand. Later, in chapter 4, verse 2, John says something similar. He says the Spirit helps us confess the right thing about Jesus. Right? And then to come full circle, the evidence, just kind of bring all this together, the evidence that we possess God's Spirit is the fact that we listen to the Apostles' teaching in chapter 4, verse 6. He says, whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So how do we know the spirit of truth in a church? When they're paying attention to the apostles' teaching. So what's John saying about the spirit here in 1 John 5? He's saying that the spirit bears witness in a unique way. At least he's implying that. In a unique way, he's the great teacher who interprets the Son, who interprets those events to the church and to the world. And we could say that's the Spirit's unique role in his testimony. Now let's think about why this is so incredible. It means then that if we've recognized Jesus as the Messiah... If we've said yes when we heard about him, to John's teaching about him, it shows us that the Spirit has already been at work in our hearts. Our hearts say yes because he has testified to it. Our hearts are convinced because he has been mercifully convicting us. And we can be assured that he will guide us into all truth. Do you realize that our hope in staying faithful to Christ, is fun, that that fundamentally rests on the fact that God has given us his spirit? Or we could say it in John's language. It's because his seed abides in us. Back in chapter 4, his seed being a reference, I think, to the spirit. His seed abides in us. This is tremendous encouragement. It's tremendous encouragement, especially as we consider the persecution that will likely come to us in the near future. Why will we stand faithfully? It's not because we're strong. (laughs) I would forsake Christ in an instant if it weren't for the, the operative power of the Spirit in my life. It's not because we're strong, but because of this inner testimony from the Spirit. He won't let us ultimately deny Christ. His testimony is too powerful. It's His power, not ours, that gives us confidence and hope. Now, If you, how many of you, just, I'm curious, complete side note, you ready? How many of you have a King James or a New King James version tonight? Raise your hand high. All right, three of you, four of you. 
If you have questions about this, you're like, hey, you're skipping verses, man. What's going on? You thinking that? Come talk to me. Okay? Because it's too big of a can to get into right now, and I'm already, I'm already running late. All right? You guys don't want to be here for an hour and 20 minutes. So, suffice it to say that there are, there are two different streams of, of traditions of the text, the text that stand behind the, the translations of the New Testament. The Textus Receptus is the, translate, the, the, the stream that stands behind the King James and the New King James. And there was an insertion into the Latin Vulgate. I'm getting into it now, all right? There was an insertion, sort of an allegorical interpretation, because this is such a difficult text to interpret. What does he mean by water and blood, spirit? How does that work together? They interpret it sort of allegorically as the Trinity. So there was, at the end of verse 7 and kind of beginning of verse 8, there was something inserted here, um, and it's not original. It's actually a very interesting, kind of funny story for how it happened. Um, But... It's, this is not, this, you know, immediately when you start talking about these things, you kind of have to get into the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts. So we can talk about that. So if you have that tr- translation, you want to learn about that, you want to know about that, what's going on, even if you don't, and you're just kind of curious, um, we, can, we can chat. But that's all I'm going to say about it right now. Okay? But I just wanted to at least open and close that can really quick. Give you a little whiff of what was inside, and then we're moving on. Okay? We have a reliable text. Okay, amen. Now, you guys are like, yes, yes, keep moving. These first two assurances, okay, they, they are headed somewhere. These witnesses, okay, the spirit, the blood, the water, they make up the very witness, get it, of God himself. And this leads us to our third assurance. It's that God himself bears witness, and he is the most compelling of all witnesses when you compare him to humans. God himself bears witness, and he is the most compelling of all witnesses. And this is another assurance that we can sink our teeth down into in the midst of doubt. Look with me in verse 9. If we receive the testimony he has borne concerning his Son, no, I'm sorry, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So the point of these verses is that God himself bears witness and he is the most compelling of all witnesses. John has now brought his argument to a logical end. He's essentially saying that these witnesses that he's just talked about, the three, that they all amount to one witness. One overarching, incredibly significant witness. And it's God. I don't think he's adding a fourth witness to sort of the stand, you know? I think he's saying that this is God's way of witnessing to his Son. He's saying that the Spirit, the water, and the blood are all part of this one witness that God's bearing concerning his Son. It's the exclamation point of his argument, in other words. But he wants us to see something in particular so that we're assured. He makes the point, not just that God's the witness, but he makes the point that it's easy for us to receive the testimony of people. It's easy to receive them, especially when a few of them agree about something. 
And if that's the case, and it is, his point is how much more should we receive and be assured about God's testimony when all these things stand in agreement? His testimony is greater. You see that in verse 9? How's it greater? Well, for starters, God has never, ever lied. Ever. He's never led anyone astray. He has never given false information. It is an impossibility for God. He's only ever told the truth. And here, John is saying that his testimony, this testimony, the testimony preached by the apostles, the testimony confirmed by the Spirit, the testimony preached by the life and death of Jesus, this is God Himself testifying about His Son. And it is the answer of the universe. So this means that we should, number one, wholeheartedly commit to Jesus in faith, staking everything upon Him. This is a moral imperative. Because God is proclaiming, testifying to the truthfulness of Jesus. We don't invite people to faith in Christ. We command them to believe. So this means we should wholeheartedly commit to Jesus in faith, staking everything on Him. And that number two, we should radically slay any doubts we may have about the dependability of these promises. When you hear things creeping up in your heart, is this really true? Can I really depend on God to come through for me? Will I really be raised from the dead? Will the kingdom really be better than this life? Will I really be rewarded for righteousness? Can I really trust Him in this moment when it seems like everything's going against His promises? Remember that He has declared these things to be so. And slay those doubts now. He is the greatest Witness, and He has never failed to fulfill any of His promises. Ever. And John wants us to feel this weight because he helps us understand what's at stake in accepting or not accepting God's testimony in verse 10. And as a side note, okay, again, verse 10 if you want to mentally think about this, it should have a parenthesis around it if you just want to kind of parenthesis verse 10 because it's sort of a a slight aside in the argument. It kind of breaks his thought from the end of verse 9. So real quick, if you notice, he's about to tell us what God's testimony actually is in verse 9. He's like, and this is the testimony of God that he's born concerning his son. And you're like, where are you going? And then he breaks off in verse 10. But then notice he comes back in verse 11. And this is the testimony. Here it is. Let me tell you. That God has given us eternal life. So he he doesn't quite complete his thought in verse 9. And he kind of leaves us hanging until verse 11. So verse 10 is kind of this parenthesis. But it doesn't mean it's not important. Because he wants to kind of bear down on us in verse 10. To help us feel the weight 
He's showing us what's at stake to motivate us to fight our doubts. And if we're not believing Jesus, to believe in Him. He says if we believe God, we have the testimony in ourselves. He's going to tell us that that's eternal life in a minute. But notice what he says next. If we don't believe, we make God a liar. How so? Because God is testifying about His Son that He's the Messiah, that He can bear the weight of our sins, that He will lead us into resurrection life. If we doubt Him, we run the risk of accusing God that He is not trustworthy. Listen, church, it is not a noble or humble thing to doubt God. It's sin. It accuses him of lying. And as his people, we don't want to do that. And if you're here tonight, and you're refusing to believe the gospel, if you think in your heart that this Jesus stuff's a joke, or that it's not really true, John is warning you. You are calling God a liar. And if you do not repent, that kind of slander of His character will land you in hell for eternity. So humble yourself. Receive God's testimony about His Son. Yield to Him in humble faith and stake your entire life upon this King. He loves to freely forgive His enemies. For those who slandered Him, ask the Jews in Acts 2. He loves to transform traitors into His brothers, so don't continue in your arrogant scoffing. Kiss the Son. Psalm 2. Pay homage to Him, for His wrath is quickly kindled. And all this leads us to our fourth and final assurance in this passage. This God who cannot lie has made us a promise that He calls the testimony. John describes the the pledge that God has made to us. And it's the fact that we have eternal life through His Son. So we could describe our fourth assurance like this. God Himself has given us eternal life in the Son. This is an assurance that we can sink our teeth into if we're tempted to doubt. It's a foundation for our faith. The pledge that God Himself really has. He's really done this. He's really given us eternal life. And that life really is in His Son and in no other place. We're all searching for life, every person on the planet. And life is found in His Son, and we have it. Look in verse 11. This is the testimony. Here it is. That God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son then has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I am writing these things to you who believe, or I have written these things to you who believe, in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. 
This final assurance is where he's been, he- he's, he's been heading this entire time. He's wanting us to know. He's wanting to be able to make that statement that God's given us eternal life and us to feel the weight of it, the truthfulness of it. Because Jesus has fulfilled the Messianic expectations. He's done all that we need to have it. The Spirit's testifying that this is true. He's bearing in on your heart that this is really the case. And then God himself is telling you this is true. He really has given us eternal life. He wants us to know that we have it. And here he says that the testimony itself is the promise that eternal life has been given to us in Jesus. So we're going to end here tonight. We're going to use these verses as our springboard for next week. These last, few, these last couple verses here. Especially verse 13. But tonight, God wants us, He wants us here in Boundless to make sure that we have no doubts lingering concerning His his promises or His character to us or the freeness of eternal life. And so if those doubts are in your heart, we're happy to chat, happy to talk about those things, kind of help you triage. If you're not a believer and you want to become one, um, we can talk about that too. That's a great thrill of our hearts. So if you have questions, as always, let's chat. But these are four giant assurances that lead to the, to the strengthening of our faith that we can sink our teeth into and live lives in obedience to God. All right, next time we're going to look at the, what, what faith produces or what the, maybe we might call it the fruit of faith. Here are these things that, that we get because we believed God. There's a confidence that starts building toward Him and answered prayer, all kinds of really interesting things, encouraging things. So we'll look at that um, next time. All right, let's pray. Father, we're thankful for how carefully you shepherd us and how um, clear you are. We confess, Lord, our doubts. We confess when our faith falters. When we have these moments where you bring these trials into our lives, these situations that expose us, that we begin to wonder, are you really for us? Is this really true? Can we really depend on you? And these are our, our Abraham moments, our hope against hope moments, when you, like when you came to him and promised him that he was going to have a son. And then ten years went by, no children. He hoped against hope. Sarah was beyond childbearing years. He hoped against hope. And you came through on your promises like you always have. So we're thankful for your faithfulness. We're thankful for your patience with us. We're thankful for how kindly you treat us. And we pray tonight that you would strengthen our faith with these assurances and um, give us confidence to live for you. We pray in Christ's name.